You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, March 14th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake. And here with me today is Josh Lipsky, Director at the Atlantic Council, and Daniel Lacaye, Chief Economist at Tresses. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank thanks you. Thanks for having me. That, yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, you know, we continue to see the Russian invasion of Ukraine upending global markets. We saw some volatility today, perhaps not as bad as we saw in the previous week, but at one point, stocks, bonds, oil, gold, all moving lower, although it looks like as we close out the U.S. session for equities, uh, they're trying to come back to just about break even. Um, we also, interestingly, saw really heavy telling, uh, selling rather in Chinese tech shares that knocked the Hang Seng down really sharply. Um, I, I think it's a, a great place to start just getting an assessment from both of you. And Josh, you know, part of what hurt uh, the the Asian shares were reports that Russia asked China for military help, unconfirmed reports. Uh, there's been some back and forth on that. Today, we learned President Biden is considering a trip to Europe. I mean, on the surface, does this does not appear to be a situation that is de-escalating. You know, what what's your assessment of where we are? I would agree. There are no signs right now of de-escalation. There were some rumblings over the weekend about talks, but all that seems to unfortunately have faded away. And you're right. I think China is as much the big story this week as Russia, one, because of the report about the ask for Chinese military assistance, and two, because of the lockdowns that now will be happening in Shenzhen and other cities in China. So all of this is weighing on sentiment. The idea, and this is why I think we're seeing oil come back down a little, that demand might suffer. And we can talk talk about the supply chain implications and inflation, but just from an oil demand perspective, are we going back to March 2020 now, two years later, and this idea of a COVID lockdown situation in the second largest economy? So you have that crisis in China, and then you have the G7 basically isolating the 11th largest economy in the world, Russia, and all the implications of freezing their foreign reserve assets, shutting off exports and imports, what that means for supply chains in the global economy. So two global economic shocks now, back to back. And I think we are entering to unprecedented territory just as the Fed convenes and starts a rate hiking regime, something we haven't seen in a long time here in the U.S. Yeah, Daniel, it's really the confluence of all of this, isn't it, That that's rolling. It, it, it's, it's the shocks on top of what was already a really challenging macro environment. How are you thinking through all of this? Yes, I completely agree. I think that the problem is that all of this is happening in the middle of a slowdown. And um, we, are, we are putting everything under the umbrella of the Ukraine invasion. However, we need to remember that the developed economies were already showing worrying signs of a slowdown. The uh, the Chinese economy uh, is trying to digest uh, what, what is an inevitable slowdown as well, coming from the burst of an enormous housing bubble. And on top of it, you have the crackdown on the most important uh, sectors. So all of this means 
weakening of the global economy and the Ukraine invasion, particularly the extremely severe sanctions that have been imposed, are going to create ripple effects, particularly on the eurozone. I think that it's inevitable now that we will see a dramatic slowdown in the European economy, which is essential for so many things uh, happening also globally, like uh, the recovery of Latin America, which was also lagging behind. So, you know, a lot of uh, uh, challenges that we need to add to a, to a complex monetary environment in which, on the one hand, you have inflationary pressures, and on the other hand, you see central banks uh, being a little bit uh, prudish about the, about the normalization rate because uh, the, the situation can become very volatile, as we're seeing in global markets. Yeah. You know, I, I, let's dig in on that. And Daniel, just let me ask you a follow up on that, um, because two really important questions there, both with Europe and China. Let's start with China, though. How, you know, how uh, vulnerable is China and the Chinese economy? I mean, we're hearing, especially when we're looking at, you know, the cost of energy rocketing up food supplies. I mean, this was one of the really sort of scary scenarios that started to play out. Some of these projections that certainly we were hearing um, here from, from people trying to talk about if you take the Ukraine supply and the Ukraine Russia supply of, say, wheat out of the system. How worried are you about the Chinese economy? And what could that lead to in terms of policy decisions on the part of China, given those headlines we've seen um, with Russia coming to them for aid? Ha talk to me about that, about that line. I, I am worried about the Chinese economy because uh, China had a tremendously attractive opportunity to change the, the model, the growth model, a few years ago and uh, politically decided to abandon it because it preferred to continue down the path of massive white elephants and the housing bubble, which is, which is bursting all over the country. And uh, in a country in which the housing uh, market, in which real estate is about uh, directly and indirectly about 20%, 23% of the, of the GDP of the country, you cannot offset it with anything else. Even uh, even less so if you add on top of it very severe crackdowns on corporates that are essential to deliver some kind of growth elsewhere. No, so if you put all of that together in an economy that requires almost ten units of debt to generate one unit of GDP, and its uh, dependency on the U.S. dollar, we always forget about China how uh, scarce. It is in terms of its its demand for for U.S. dollars and and uh, all of that put together, uh, you see commodities rising. You have a surprisingly low figure of uh, producer prices in China, and uh, we can debate whether that is uh, believable or not. But what we can certainly see is that. Uh, the, the inflationary pressures in China are stronger than what the official data suggests, and that the economy cannot offset the, the bursting of a, of a real estate bubble of the size of the one that China has with other sectors. And I think that that is likely to drive 
a weakening, obviously, of the uh, of the global economy because of the importance of China in terms of both the uh, the, the exports to the rest of the world and the uh, and 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 its uh, impact on the global growth. Does that does that? Uh create a situation where uh, Putin is a liability, a greater liability because of the, uh, you know, what this is doing to the global economy, the uncertainty around uh, the war, or does it make China more reliant on Russia than we might otherwise believe? We always think China's in the driver's seat. Uh, in my opinion, I think that first, China is not so much in the driver's seat. If it was in the driver's seat, there would not have been a Ukraine invasion, in my opinion. Uh, I think also that uh, it is not that easy to uh, move the essential commodities that are used in Europe, that are used in, in, in developed economies, uh, move them to China. It takes uh, billions of dollars of, of, of infrastructure and changes in the supply chain in order to move the gas from the from from the west to the east you know so it's not easy and I think that the the Ukraine invasion is putting a tremendous uh, amount of pressure on supply chains because we're ultimately talking about two countries, Ukraine and Russia, that are essential for uh, cereals, that are essential for aluminum, that are essential for palladium, that is uh, critical as well for, for so many uh, different activities, as well as natural gas and oil. Uh, the, the, the situation for Russia obviously is, is dramatic. The, the estimates right now are that the Russian economy is suffering a, a level of inflation that is close to 20 percent. It is uh, looking at a collapse of GDP of around 8 to 12 percent for 2022. And the uh, decision of uh, many countries to try to isolate it further uh, from the, the the imports that many of the developed economies uh, take from from Russia is obviously going to significantly hurt Russia even further but it is also putting strains on the supply chains and is and is inflationary all over the world hey everyone we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners we'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the real vision daily briefing you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, Josh, I want you to weigh in here. Do you also share these concerns? about China. Uh, and again, you know, it's interesting because when you're when you're state controlled, it gives them in some ways flexibility to, to move all sorts of levers in their economy that maybe other countries don't. But in this case, is it enough? And are they, you know, how wounded will they be or how stressed will they be based on what we're seeing in terms of the destabilization of the, as you pointed out before, supply chains already under pressure? Well, yeah, I agree with Daniel. And I think the way to think about this is that 
People are saying that China will be some sort of lifeline for Russia militarily, economically. China has their own problems, as we've just been discussing. And so they did not need this. They did not need Russia's invasion of Ukraine and all the pressure that puts on them economically and geopolitically. We have Jake Sullivan from the White House meeting with his counterpart now in Italy today. This is not the problem they were looking for, given all the domestic issues they have going on. And the way you know that, you'll hear a lot of political rhetoric out of China supporting Russia. But look at the banks, look at the financial system, look at the way that they support or don't support Russia. They will continue trading with Russia. There's a deep trading relationship between China and Russia. There's a swap line between the central banks. There are FX reserves that China holds for Russia. But they will not go out of their way. They will be cautious on sanctions. China is always cautious on Western sanctions. They will not want to get on the wrong side of that. So the way to think about it is because of all the issues China has domestically from their property sector, their slowdown and otherwise, they will apply, they will play it both ways and they will do as little as they possibly can economically to support Russia in the situation. But they also won't pull the rug out from Russia at the same time. Yeah, well, always always watch the money rather than to follow the the political rhetoric is a, is a good a good piece of advice when you're looking at uh, at this kind of situation and certainly looking at Washington. Josh, do you think that the that uh, we know Zelensky is going to give an address to Congress before uh, there's been a lot of again rhetoric and vocal support for Ukraine. Do you think that there's a push uh, on the part of Americans talking to their European allies in terms of maybe going after third parties doing business with Russia? You had Senator Toomey on uh, making the rounds today, saying there's more we can do. Well, there is there is more we can do. We've talked about this at the Atlantic Council. There are more sanctions options, but we also have to step back and think what we have done. This is historic and unprecedented for the G7. They basically brought down the heaviest financial hammer they could think of in terms of sanctioning the central bank and wiping out somewhere close to $350 billion of foreign exchange reserves from Russia's account. That's equivalent to the size of Austria's entire GDP. So that was switched off from the bank account overnight. And Russia's economy is in crisis. They are going to default on some of their payments in the coming weeks. I really believe that. And, you know, Daniel said 8 to 12 GDP percent contraction. It could be worse. It could be yeah. closer to 20 percent potentially in 2022. We don't know. It's evolving so rapidly. It's very hard to say. But I think 8 to 12 is even modest and conservative at this point. So they could be facing a historic GDP contraction within the Russian economy. So, yes, there's more that can be done there. Secondary sanctions. There are more oligarchs who can be sanctioned. The screws can be tightened further from both the U.S. and the Europeans. Of course, there's oil and gas still from Europe that we can talk about. But let's also recognize that a lot has been done in a relatively short amount of time that surprised me and I think surprised many observers. Yeah. And, and Daniel, it's, it's, it's certainly creating you know risks for the economy. The further they go, the more we need to worry about the, the knock-on consequences for that. We have a question uh, from Ralph from the RV site. How much trouble are European banks in with Russian losses and other headwinds? That's not to mention any margin calls that may come up. Counterparty risk if you're looking at failures. Yes, absolutely. There are significant consequences. We cannot sort of bring them down. I concur with, with Josh, as he mentioned before, that the impact on the Russian economy might be significantly higher than what the current estimates are showing. Um, in terms of the financial sector, very similar. The financial sector in Europe has about $80 billion uh, of exposure to Russia. That seems very small. It is actually very small relative to the size of the asset base of the European banks, which is uh, north of $3 trillion. However, the problem is that, let's remember, 
80 billion was also the exposure to Greece, and uh, it um, created significant turmoil. So we need to be aware of the ramifications of all of this. And so far, it's very difficult to know because it's not just the exposure to Russian banks. Uh, it is also the exposure to long-term take-or-pay contracts with the Russian energy providers, particularly Gazprom. Uh, in, in the case of Italy, Germany, those are important. There are significant liabilities also from uh, on the side of some of the companies. So overall, the, the, the size of the exposure is relatively limited in terms of the financial sector. But we cannot say that just because it's relatively small compared to the total asset base, that, that it will not generate challenges. I think that the ECB acknowledges that as well, because it has immediately implemented a number of backstops in order to prevent uh, liquidity constraints. So uh, we, we need to see as it goes along. The, the impact on the European economy is going to be significant. We cannot uh, say that it's going to be small. We know from the past that sanctions uh, have an impact uh, on, on the European economies, particularly from north to south. But as Josh was mentioning before, these sanctions are completely different. This is a completely new environment. These are significantly more severe. These are the most aggressive sanctions we have seen in in recent history. No, in history. And the the therefore the impact uh, and the secondary impact on the European economy is going to be coming in three ways. First, obviously, a significantly lower amount of exports to the rest of the world. Second, uh, a very high increase in imports, which obviously will deduct from the uh, from the component of the external sector on GDP. And third is the ramifications of the of the slowdown of the economy in general, which uh, goes from north to south, and therefore the exports of the southern European countries to Germany or France, which are critical, will also so come down. So there's almost a domino effect that will significantly hurt the European economy. It can go into stagnation uh, and stagflation, actually, uh, more quickly than what we would imagine. And, you know, this, of course, comes uh, when central banks were prepared to enter a different regime. We, we heard the ECB sounding more hawkish than many thought. We have a Fed meeting this week, a Bank of England meeting this week. Uh, Stephen Van Meter and Peter Buffar had an interesting conversation uh, this week about the central bank, about the Fed um, on the platform. I'd like to share a clip for that. Let's have a listen. I've been saying for, for weeks that strictly from a market perspective, and an economic perspective that uh, we should fear more Jay Powell than Vladimir Putin. Now, Putin, of course, has made Powell's job that much more difficult, but it's, it's, it's Powell and what he does with interest rates and what Lagarde does and what Andrew Bailey does in the UK uh, that, that is probably more relevant for markets in the economy. And I'm going to throw a question to you because, you know, I get asked this as you know, being a, a critic of the Fed for a long time. You know, I always get the question, well, okay, smart Alec, if you were head of the Fed, what would you do here? So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you, Steve, if you were head of the Fed, what would you do here? Yeah. In light wow. of these this micro situation. 
uh, that, <laughs> that's a tough question because that's a job, Peter, I would not want. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be there. I think the Fed uh, has no choice to hike. I think, I mean, I don't think they want to. I think if I'm in, uh, in head of the Fed, I think I have no choice here. And the way I look at it is, you know, the Fed's got everything they want going for. It. I mean, you've got, you know, high CPI. We just got the Jules report today. Um, the numbers, is it north of 11 million still? I forget the actual number. And you start to look at this from an economic perspective, and the Fed has to hike. Now, we know Powell doesn't really want to. I mean, he's been around long enough. He's seen, you know, hey, if you pull back on QE and we really slam the brakes on this thing quick, that the economy needs time to digest this. And just looking at the equity market alone, since the Fed put the brakes on, should give us cost for warning. And that uh, full interview is available on realvision.com across all tiers today. Uh, Daniel, uh, it, they're in a tough spot, but the market's pricing in seven rate hikes, I think it is, at last check for this year. Does it seem like the Fed can do that against this geopolitical backdrop that we're talking about? Well, the Fed is caught between a rock and a hard place, isn't it? On the one hand, inflationary pressures are very strong. There is uh, there is an uh, all the data points that would uh, recommend hikes are there. But at the same time, you have market turmoil, which is very important for the Fed, a lot more than what many would imagine and what they actually uh, should be worried about. Um, and there's obviously the Ukraine crisis. So we have to remember that in 2018, they made a complete U-turn uh, based on geopolitical concerns that were nothing compared with what we're seeing today. So if I was actually quite skeptical that they would uh, go for seven rate hikes uh, before you know, skeptical today. Uh, I think that uh, at the same time, I heard a, a comment saying that uh, markets should be more concerned about Powell than Putin. No, they shouldn't. No, they shouldn't. I mean, even if we believed the seven rate hikes that were announced, the uh, interest rates in, in the United States would continue to be negative in real terms for a very prolonged period of time. And uh, we should definitely be significantly more scared about uh, the Ukraine invasion, because what we're seeing, the ripple effects on the global economy are much larger than a rate hike. Yeah, absolutely. And Josh, I think we saw that play out, didn't we? Um, I, I, we mentioned briefly what happened in nickel last week. There are reports that European energy firms are asking for help, support maybe to cover their margin spikes. I mean, is there is there fragility in the global economy that central banks need to worry about? Do you expect them to comment on that at the meetings this week? I, I do. And there is fragility and fully agree with what Daniel said. We need to be concerned about what Putin's doing and the instability that causes geopolitically and geoeconomically. That is the driving factor here. And whatever the Fed does on interest rates will not tip the scales. They will raise rates. They signal they will raise rates. They need to raise rates. That's not the question in March. They're going to raise by a quarter point. I think that's clear. The question is what happens next. 
what happens over the six weeks. Will they get to the seven? It's just so hard to say right now. But when we think about the fragility, you know, the Fed really has three mandates. We talk about two mandates for the Fed. One is, of course, in managing inflation. That's front and center of their minds. Two is maximum employment. That's something Powell is committed to more than any Fed chair in history, in my opinion. But three in the sort of unstated mandate is global financial stability. The issuer of the world reserve currency takes that seriously, and so does Jay Powell. So I think you're going to hear that strongly from the Wednesday press conference. They are looking what's happening around the world. He is talking to Christine Lagarde. He is talking to Andrew Bailey. This is not something done in a silo. And this is the lessons learned from 2008 and the global financial crisis. You cannot let these things get out of hand. There has to be some global economic coordination. Some of it is outside of their control, but some of it is within their control and they can get ahead of it. Yeah. And because we we have seen collateral scarcity before. I mean, we, we, you know, it not this is this is unlike the other crisis, but we have seen the kind of coordinated extraordinary measures even during the pandemic that can be put into place rather quickly. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Daniel, how do we separate? Is it possible to separate what's happening due to the crisis or the supply chains with China, especially now these headlines are coming at a time when, you know, Europe and U.S. are exiting some of those extreme pandemic measures to hear that 51 million people are locked down in China again and not really understanding what that will do to the supply chain. How do we vet out what's happening and, you know, what part of the market do you think is giving us the clearest view on that? Should we be watching bonds? Is it gold? You know, is it is it digital assets and crypto? Where, where are you watching to get a to get a read on what's happening? Uh, yeah, from on a macro per, perspective, what we look at basically is is consumer figures and the strength of consumer figures. And in terms of markets, we like to look at the at the differences in the in the way in which uh, equities behave in those that are supposed to be the bellwethers for. Uh, changes in the economic cycle. So those, the, 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 the so-called value, more cyclical components of the stock market. Uh, I think that you, those are basically where there's a big starting to, to see a little bit of nervousness coming from the idea that we are going to be likely uh, in a situation in which uh, the, the cycle turns and it turns quickly. And coming back to your point, the financial sector Sector is critical as well. We're looking a lot of what is happening with the bonds. So far, the reaction of bonds is 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 pretty, I would say, calm. It's, it's not as aggressive as, as definitely equity markets. But the reaction in, in the bond market and the reaction in the, uh, in the financial sector bond market is something that interests us uh, quite a bit, because that's where you, you start to get nervousness when you see some of the most aggressive uh, instruments that were issued, particularly a few years ago, like the COCOs, no, the, the, the hybrid bonds with significant components of equity, etc. Uh, interestingly enough, those still 
behaving quite moderately compared to the risks that we are seeing building up in the market. But spreads are widening, and they're widening probably faster than what central banks would have imagined by being, uh, let's say, by announcing so many times and with so much time what they're going to do. Daniel, we've seen really heavy selling in European equities uh, over you know the course of the last two weeks. There is a temptation for people to try to look for value in extreme circumstances. Is now the time to do that? Uh, it, are, are, is this a space that seems investable to you if you have a long time horizon, or is there just too much uncertainty and too much we need to understand about what this is going to do to the Russian economy and the counterparty risks that lie there? I think it's it's important to to sort of try to avoid the temptation to jump in, particularly for one simple reason, is that European equities were, you know, more or less uh, cheap compared to, to U.S. equities in uh, September, August, September last year. They're not anymore. They're not anymore. We have significant earnings downgrade regardless of what is happening in Ukraine. And on top of that, something is creeping up that is seriously concerning for investors, which is regulatory risk. For example, you would be tempted to purchase uh, equities in utilities because of the inflationary pressures and the rise in electricity prices. And here comes the the the, the blunt force of regular, regulatory risk. And you see that governments in the European Union are starting to talk about uh, price controls, are starting mm -hmm. to talk about increasing taxes on the sectors that they perceive uh, are so-called benefiting from from the crisis, which they're not anyway. So uh, you need to step back a little bit, look at what is going on with the earnings. Uh, one thing that I was particularly concerned about the earnings season in the, in the fourth quarter was the lack of guidance. I don't like it when companies don't give guidance. It means that they don't know what is going on with their business. If they don't know it, I don't know it either. I prefer to wait. Yeah. And if they didn't know then, they, they most certainly probably have less clarity now. Any indication as we see the you know refugee crisis spilling over and there's so many questions about what all that's going to mean. Josh, uh, great question. Uh, will the U.S. be able to smooth over its relationship with the Saudis and the UAE? We haven't even discussed that yet, but that's yeah. also in the mix of this. Oh, it's certainly in the midst of it. Those conversations are happening right now. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of questioning about how the UAE's reacted so far and trying to, you know, be basically even handed. And the U.S. is pressuring right now to deepen that relationship and not just with the Saudis and the UAE, but also think about Iran, right? There's been talks about restarting the Iranian nuclear deal that faltered over the weekend. Uh, U.S. officials went to Venezuela last weekend to talk about lifting sanctions on Venezuela. This is a little bit ironic when you think about what's driving that. So all of these relationships, from Saudi, from the UAE, from Iran to Venezuela. The U.S. is re-engaging in a way they haven't engaged in years. And I don't think it's going to be so easy because these countries have multiple poles pulling at them. They have the U.S. and the West, and they have the Europeans, but they also have Russia. They also have China at the same time. And these countries will try to do everything they can to basically stay neutral as much as possible. And they will not try to get on the wrong side of either case. So, you know, I think the U.S. will try to engage, but I don't think they're going to get a lot of of tractions from Saudi Arabia or the UAE in the near term.
This is what gets risky, though, if they start going down the road of third-party sanctions. Um, there may be a situation that that's not an option. Staying neutral is not an option, and that's where I think the, the risk really rises. I want to ask you quick, quickly about digital assets, Josh. I know you're looking at the, all of the implications of regulatory issues surrounding crypto here in the U.S., but a lot of questions have come up on the, on the role of that in this crisis. Um, you know, can it be used for payments? Can it be used to bypass sanctions? On the flip side, is it a, a store of value that is going to, you know, move um, opposite of others and perhaps a place to find safe haven? Doesn't seem like anyone's been able to work it out, or we seem to have some cross currents depending on what day you're looking at it. Yeah. What are you watching there? Yeah, cross currents is the right way to think about it. And we study these closely at our geoeconomic center here. So first, if we just think of cryptocurrency, all the sort of conversation we heard a week ago was, can cryptocurrency be used as a means of sanction evasion in Russia? And I think the answer to that is largely no. Uh, in terms of the volume that would be required to do any large-scale sanctions evasion, this is not the risk. This is not the path that Russians or others are going to be able to evade sanctions. That doesn't mean people aren't trying to convert rubles into Bitcoin. Of course, they are. They're trying to convert rubles into anything that's not rubles right now. But this is not the outflow and some workaround against the sanctions regime. But there's a broader question here. And that's if what the U.S. and the West is doing with the dollar and the euro and the yen is going to force countries to think about alternative financial systems. And China has SIPs, which is its sort of alternative to SWIFT, but actually relies on the SWIFT payment system. So that's not really an option. But what China does have, and this is what we look at, is central bank digital currency. There are 90 countries now exploring a central bank digital currency. And over time, if those countries could build wholesale bank-to-bank -bank central bank digital currencies, that's not ready yet. But over time, if they could build it, that could be an alternative to the SWIFT system. So the way I see it is cryptocurrency, not a risk of sanctions evasion, central bank digital currency, not ready for prime time, but can be in the near future. And I think what's happened in the past few weeks will accelerate development on those technologies. Does it open the door to a more uh, positive conversation here in the U.S.? Because certainly they realize that as well, uh, an alternate to the dollar system. And if they're not involved, they're going to be left out. Well, that's exactly why you saw the Biden administration last week have this executive order on digital assets. And there were a couple lines that jumped out at me. Digital currency based on democratic values. I think we all understand the signal that line is setting. And international standard setting and cross-border experimentation. The U.S. was nowhere on a digital dollar two years ago. Last week, the Biden administration said it was an urgent national security priority. So I think that tells you a lot about where the U.S. is headed. They see the geopolitical landscape and the economic landscape as well. And that and that's the that's the key, the national security aspect, which many had been arguing, but it had been falling on deaf ears and you know some of the consumer protection side of it concerns um, were reigning the day. But now perhaps um, the conversation centered on that. Uh, we're almost out of time. Daniel, I want to ask you, a lot of people are trying to figure out what do I do in this environment? How can I protect my portfolio? What do I need to be looking at? Um, what, what's your what's your advice to that or what what seems like a, a you know, a, a defensive posture right now um, as we as we look at these incredibly volatile markets. I mean, some of the moves we saw in commodities, it, it, it's not so bad today, but they've been incredible and I think really frightening to people, even some people who've had have experience. Well, what are you telling people? Well, what we're saying is we're long-term investors. So what we want to have is a portfolio that has, and I use the a sports analogy. You need goalkeepers, you need defense, and you need uh, attack. 
The goalkeeper in defense is gold in the dollar. You need to have gold and dollar assets. And because in this environment, and I think it's proven by the the way that in which the, the market has debunked the idea that the ruble was a safe currency because of its large gold reserves, well, that is gone. Thank you very much. So we need to have dollars. We need to have gold. We need to have, uh, and, they, and we need to have an attack. And we need to have uh, cyclical, exposure. And where do we find silicon exposure? Not looking at the past. The, the, the cyan calls of geopolitical risk always make you look at the past and look at banks, look at oil companies. No, look at the future. Look at the companies that are in cybersecurity, the companies that are in uh, the companies that have to do with defense and with uh, artificial intelligence. Look at technology, sustainability, and look at uh, digital assets because the the crypto world is 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 attractive and is starting to be more attractive particularly as what Josh just mentioned becomes a reality because once central bank digital currencies come to the picture then the destruction of purchase and power of fiat currency that we're seeing right now will be uncomparable with what we will see in the future Wow. I have to ask you, Daniel, in that, and we'll have to do a whole show uh, unpacking that that last statement, but you mentioned sustainability. Are you referring to ESG? Because a lot of people pronounce that dead as of last week. Oh, but we, we don't like the concept of ESG when it means loss making. We don't like the concept of technology when it means no profits. We like the concept of sustainability when it means uh, uh, businesses that are generating better solutions for access to water, better yeah. solutions for access to energy, solar and wind. We're talking about profit making companies, not greenwashing, loss making entities or no profit businesses. That is something that we don't invest in. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really important distinction because it's easy to paint everything when you say sustainability, you know, yeah. in, in that in that light. But you're really talking about innovation solving the world's biggest problems. Absolutely, absolutely. Not just uh, uh, things that sort of uh, try to uh, paint a, a picture or, or create a PowerPoint slide out of a out of what is not a business. Uh, we we we, we, talk, we want real businesses with real cash flows and with strong uh, earnings growth. Yeah, fantastic point. And there's and there's a lot of interesting things being done um, in that in that area. So I think that's going to be really fascinating to sort of you know tease out what exactly that means and separate um, those two things uh, is going to be really important. Thank you so both so much for this fantastic conversation and for being here today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Great insights. And thank you all for watching. Thanks for the questions. Uh, we will be back same time tomorrow. Warren Pye is going to be here with Tony Greer. So be sure to tune in. And of course, the conversation continues on the exchange on realvision.com. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, Head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.